Today, the title of my message is very kind of provocative, which I usually shoot for, so uh, bear with me. Uh, but it's, it's, it's simply this. Hell, you deserve it. That's, uh, that's kind of offensive. You have not done anything to me in particular, okay? I'm not, I'm not trying to, to rile you up per se, but, but this is a true statement. This is a true statement. It's a little harsh. Well, it's, it's very harsh in a lot of senses, but it's biblically consistent. When, when we look in Romans... There's these famous passages that have been linked all together in what's called the Romans Road. And, and they begin out with, with Romans 3.23 saying, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 tells us that for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And, and, and Romans 3.10-18 is really quite, <clears throat> it's, it's quite harsh actually because it's, it, it pulls no punches and, and it includes everyone says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's an inclusive statement. That means everyone. It means you. It means me. And what it means is that, well, hell is what we deserve. In Genesis, in the very beginning, uh, chapter 2, verse 17, God gives us decree to his, his newly created uh, image bearers, Adam. He says, The tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. See, this is both an uncomfortable and offensive statement because it, it, it brings us face to face with the reality. One that I have to admit personally that I, I don't like. <laughs> I, I like to think that I'm a good guy. I tell a lot of people that fact. I hope they kind of pick it up on their own. You know what? He's a good guy. I try to do nice things. And, and uh, that, that song that we, we sang this morning, uh, I'll, I'll bring you more than a song. Right? Uh, longing to bring you something that is of worth. This has been my struggle because these passages, what they say is, there's nothing I can bring God that's of worth. Because I am a sinner. And, and, and the wages of what I have worked, my investments, the best of what I have accomplished, bring me a deserved death and judgment. This message is not about, in some senses, uh, uh, banging you over the head or trying to be guilted into this idea that, that you're, you're going to hell without Jesus. I, I want to suggest to you, though, that this morning this message is about justice. It's about justice. And, and see, that, that the, the title is, it's, it's what you deserve. That the, the consequences of our actions, the consequences of our choices matter. And, and, and what's more than that, they don't just matter in the immediate. They have an uh, eternal implication. I am, uh, 
I like this picture. Um, it's got, uh, it, it's, well, hopefully it's not a picture you're familiar with, but it, it's, it's a rear view mirror there with, uh, you know, um, the police in it. And uh, I was particularly uh, tickled by the, the little statement that's always on the mirrors. The object in the mirrors may be closer than they appear. Because <laughs> it struck me that <laughs> judgment may be closer to your life than it may appear. So what is justice? Like, what is it really? You know, it's an interesting kind of uh, uh, idea because, you know, personally, I am really good with justice for other people. I think there's a lot of people that need to be brought to justice. Now, there's um, one of my favorite apologists is Ravi Zacharias, and he has this really great little uh, framework of explaining uh, a reasonable existence for God. And, and he begins with this idea of evil, that evil is a thing. And, and I imagine you have uh, had conversations about God and his existence and, and what he has done in your life with someone who has not had those experiences. They don't believe in the Bible. They don't believe in these kinds of things. That may be fine, but ask them if they believe if there's evil. It is something that at the at one hand is something that is intellectually resistant and yet so empirically uh, uh, provable. That intellectually, we want to say that there isn't such a thing as evil. Not really. That, that there is good in people and that, that things are getting better despite the evidence. And yet, when we look at the world around us, it, it's hard not to describe it as anything other than evil. Well, if there is evil, then, then it stands to reason that there needs to be something in contrast that would actually define it as such. And so then there, there must be good. And, and for there to be good, then what it requires is that there is some sort of moral law, something that distinguishes what is good and what is not good. Consider the, 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 the tree that God placed in the middle of the Garden of Eden and he asked Adam not to eat of it. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because for Adam and Eve to eat of that tree was for them to say, God, we don't need you. We will define what is good and what is evil. So if there is evil, then there is good. If there is good, there is a moral law. But if there is a moral law, then it requires that there is a moral law giver. Someone who has said, it shall be thus. And see, what is so, what is so awful about what Adam and Eve did is they told God, look, we don't, we don't want you to be in control. We don't believe that you know what's best for us. We'll do our own thing. And since then, people have been choosing to do their own thing and reaping the consequences of those choices. In John uh, 3.17 to 28, it talks about the necessity of a moral lawgiver. This is a passage that, uh, that we, we looked at actually as well last week. And, and it goes, it's after that very famous verse. We all know the famous verse. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. The reality is, is that Jesus didn't come to tell us we're all bad people. He came because he knew we were bad people and he knew we couldn't do anything about it. 
God gives the law to us. And, and, and in the Old Testament, the, the nation of Israel, they, they, were, they were so fastidious in some ways to, to keep the law, and yet they always walked away from it. But there was a purpose to the law. In Romans 3.19 and 20, it says, We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. See, the purpose of the law is not to say, look how bad you, or in a sense, it is to say, look how bad you are. And, and, and that's maybe a crass way of putting it. Uh, another way might be to say that the law is here to say, you can't tell God that you're righteous. You can't come before God and say that like, look, I know there's these other things, but this right here, I got this. Because you don't. And, and in fact, as soon as you say you do, you have, in a sense, lost any righteousness you may have garnered. This idea of justice is one that um, it feels unfair. I, I think it's actually one of the things that one of the reasons why the church uh, shies away from this topic of hell is because, well, uh, it's offensive. Because the premise, the beginning of it, is to say that, well, you're a bad person, and you need Jesus. Jesus didn't come to save the righteous. He came to save the lost. And if you want to be saved, then you have to admit that you're lost. That the cross is an offensive thing. It was meant to be an offensive thing. And in church, church sometimes it becomes very easy to get into this rhythm and this role, this rut even, of looking righteous rather than acknowledging the fact that our only righteousness comes from the cross. And, and, and we, we ask these questions, well, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. But maybe you're not. Because it's, it's actually really easy <laughs> to look and act righteous. It's really easy as long as you're not in relationship. It's really easy if you only have to maintain it for a few hours once a day a week. See, it's uncomfortable for us to really acknowledge this idea of, of justice because we don't want to look at it in our own lives. Like, I, I want to believe, I want to believe so desperately that I'm a really good guy. Despite the evidence of my life and the, the, the choices that I've made and being faced with those consequences uh, on a daily basis. I don't know about you, but I can look at my wife and think of the things that I've done wrong to her. And I'm reminded of those things. See, but I, I want to, as a pastor, tell people, well, this is what you're doing wrong. Right? And, and as I put the focus on them, as I put the focus on other people around me, well, now I don't have to look at myself. And I can pretend that I'm upholding the righteousness of God while doing it. See, but justice is not a one-way street. And uh, we know something about one-way streets here in Montreal. It's not a one-way street, but we wish it was. There's this, there's this sentiment in, in outside of the church, I think, especially, but definitely it's inside of the church in a lot of people as well, where there's this kind of sense that heaven is compulsory for all. 
that everyone makes it. There's this statement that's kind of been coined, and it's attached to this idea. It's, it's love wins. Oftentimes when we say that, though, there's always this little caveat. You know, there's these fantastic uh, um, uh, uh, figures in history, you know, the, 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 the trifecta that, that I think often come to mind, Hitler, Stalin, and Genghis Khan. Maybe not um, uh, Genghis Khan as much. People, Stalin is kind of a sleeper, but everyone knows Hitler was the worst guy ever. See, the, the universalist wants to say that God's love trumps, it supersedes his righteousness and the satisfaction of justice. That look, that these two ideas, God's love and God's justice, they're opposed to one another, that, that they're, they're incongruent, that you can't have one and the other, that, that it's either or. And so if that's the case, well then obviously it's love because God is love. God is love. And so how could he condemn everyone then? How could he do that? <laughs> when, I was in, uh, when I was in school, <laughs> uh, I, was in, I, I took a, a class, a philosophy class. In a, it was in a, a secular school. It wasn't a Bible college. We, we were uh, in between locations, living and whatnot. Um, and I was the only theist in the class of about 40 philosophers. It was awesome. I had so much fun. I love to argue with people, and, uh, and I'm, not saying, I'm not even saying the only Christian. I mean the only theist, the only person that said that there is such a thing as God. The next closest thing was some agnostics who just said, well, maybe. And one of the things that stuck with me out of that class is my professor. <laughs> she said, thank God for Hitler. <laughs> and I, I just killed myself laughing. I just killed myself laughing. And what she meant was, we have this person who we can point to as the, the object of, of absolute evil. Absolute evil. Whenever you talk about evil, that's the name you bring up. How can we say that Hitler deserves to be judged and condemned for the actions that he has done and not say the same for ourselves? Because we, we want to say that they're not comparable. Maybe. It's probably true. It's, it's most likely true. Sorry, I don't mean to like make any accusations here. But they're the same in one, in one thing. Is that they separate us from God. No, no matter how awful that he is or how so-so you are in your evil, you're still separate from God. He talks about that there's these two resurrections, right? That, that there's going to be, uh, well, in John 5, 27, it says, he's given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. This is talking about Jesus. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And that, that everyone will stand before the seat of God and, and, and be judged for what they did. And, and, and that doesn't exclude those of us who say that we follow Jesus, those of us who have accepted what Jesus has done for us. That includes us. But I love, I didn't add these in, but I love what it talks about in Revelations where Jesus steps forward and he pulls, he's got this book of life. He says, look, that person, that name, it's here in my book. They're mine. They're mine. And, and here it's kind of confusing in a sense because it talks about those who have done good and those who have done evil. But the reality is it's, it's only what Jesus has done in me that can be good. 
And as I bring what he has done to me and apply it to the world around me and to the relationships that I have in this space, those things are good. And not because of me, but because of him. Because the reality is without him, those same actions would be evil. These two kind of judgments, I think that there's this a false assumption. There's a false assumption that occurs. I think it's part of the reason why people want to say that love wins. And the false assumption, I think, is that, that when people are finally faced with hell, when, 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 when they, they sit before the judgment seat of God, they'll go, oh, you know what? I don't think I want to go to hell anymore. I think I want to go to heaven. And that's the assumption. That when we have this experience, all of a sudden there will be this lightning change in the, the trajectory of our choices. I have three sons. I love my sons. They're fantastic. One of my sons will do anything to get what he wants. Pretty much anything. One of my sons will not do anything that I ask him to do. And I look at those two kind of characteristics and I think, if that is who we are, then why would we ever choose God? There's this story uh, that, that Jesus tells, a, a parable of rich man and Lazarus. It's in, uh, in Luke chapter 16. It's verses 19 to, to 31, I believe. It says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's hot side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off, and Lazarus at his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Besides this, Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so they may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father, Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent." He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In this story, there is an obvious allusion to, to Jesus Christ and his resurrection. But the, the thing I want to, to bring to your attention is an interesting one. And it has to do with his, his, the, the rich man's two requests. So he is in hell. He's in Hades. Burning torment desiring for <clears throat> relinquishment. Uh, just, just, uh, just, just ask Lazarus, just dip your finger in cool water and just place it on my tongue that I might just even enjoy a little bit of relief. Why didn't he ask to get out? Why do you think he didn't ask to get out?
Personally, I think it's because his choices didn't change even though he'd finally experiences the ultimate internal consequences of them. That on that day when, when everyone is resurrected to sit before the judgment seat of God, that the people who are sent to hell essentially uh, will give uh, a gesture of spitting in Jesus' face and saying, good, as long as you're not there. The second request that he makes, I think, is a, is a difficult one, and it's, and it's one that uh, will be addressed later in this series, too. But he begs that, that his brothers who are still alive would be warned that they might avoid this. And they have, Abraham says, everything they needed to know what they needed to know to make the right choices. I don't know, I can't remember, I, I've, I heard an awesome illustration. I might have used it here if I did. You're just going to have to listen again. Uh, there was this gentleman who, he, he killed a, a, a boy in a, in a, a hit-and-run accident. And he, uh, when he hit the, the child, he, he just drove away. And later on, he was, he was tracked down, and he was caught. And they asked him, you know, like, why did you, why did you drive away? Why didn't you just, like, call an ambulance? Why, did, why didn't you help the child? And, and his response was to tell a story of when he was a child and, and, and that he had snuck into his, his parents' bedroom and, and taken out his, his father's stopwatch and broken it. And, and, and not wanting to be in trouble, he just put the pieces back together, put it into the, the drawer, and, and left and didn't say anything. He says, all my life I've been making choices to not face and take responsibility for the consequences of my actions. And so on that day when I hit that child, it, it was absolutely consistent with who I was to do that. And it wasn't a choice that I made then on that day, but a choice that I've been making all of my life. And in my mind, in my understanding, it seems to me to make sense that, that hell is a lot like that. That it is just the, the, the outworking, the, the, the eternal reality of the choices that I have made that don't bring me closer to God. But they bring me further and further and further away. And likewise, the choices that I make that do bring me closer to God that these choices, that these things actually lead to eternal life and life eternal. That, that the eternity that I will experience, that right now in part I can have because I'm drawing closer to God. And it's just a foretaste. It's just a hint. It's a whiff of what is to come for all eternity. I don't think we as Christians escape judgment. Uh, it, the Bible talks about the fact that those who are teachers are going to be held to a higher uh, 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 scrutiny. That those who lead people astray will be uh, judged more harshly. And I think as Christians that we have this burden, this responsibility, uh, a reality that if we know who Jesus Christ is, if, if you had the cure to cancer, who wouldn't you tell? You have the cure to sin. Who haven't you told? The way in which that we live our lives, how often do, does our testimony become undermined by the actions that we, that we take, the choices that we make, or our inactions? 
<laughs> Something so simple as, you know, being in a drive-thru. I was in the drive-thru the other day, and I just felt like Jesus was saying, just say hello. Just ask a question. And I was just like, that's not God. That's probably not God. I will have to answer for not obeying. Whether or not that was God or not, I don't even know. But the way in which I live my life, I will have to answer for that. Every crude joke that I make, every inappropriate statement, every, every angry word that I say, Despite all that, I know that my name is written in a book, a book of life. And so I can look at those things and I can say, they are bad and they are awful and I need to turn my life away from those kinds of choices and turn them to what Jesus is asking and calling me to do. There's, a, there's something that bugs me a lot about the crucifix is that Jesus is still on it. And see, that, and that's not how God left the cross. Okay, he left the cross empty. But there's something about that I think is helpful in, in us understanding that like, when we look at it, the reason he's there is, well, it's because of us. See, the cross is, it's beautiful which is a crazy statement to make about a, 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 a tool of torture, that, that it was something that was used for those who were despised, that it was the intention of the enemy to, to, to take that and to defeat God with it, and instead God took it and uses it as a symbol of hope and love, mercy and grace. The reality is those, those things that we have done they still need to be atoned for. Oftentimes, sin, sin is talked about like a debt that you've incurred. There's a saying, um, don't cry over spilt milk. I'm sure you've probably heard it or, or heard something like it. And it's just acknowledging the reality that, you know, once you spilt milk, one, you, you, you don't drink it or you shouldn't drink it. You know, it's dirty, it's gross. Um, but it's just milk. You, you can get some more. It's, it's not that hard. Uh, grocery stores, depeners, they're usually open, so you can get more milk. It's not a big deal. But the reality is that milk is out of the bag and it is lost. That milk can never be put back into the bag. It can never be made the same. And it's true of our life as well that when we sin, it, you know, we can maybe say, well, you know, I failed and it's not a big deal. I need to move on. I need to pick myself back up. I need to focus. But the reality is that the damage has been done and it has incurred a debt. And it's a debt to God. And the reality is that debt still needs to be paid. And if we're not the ones to pay it, then someone needs to. And this, and this is what makes the cross so beautiful. Because it is the symbol, it is the vehicle of my sins, every single one, from the smallest and most inane to the most detrimental and destructive that I can think of. All of them are placed in that moment, on that cross, for me that I could be in relationship with God. Evil calls for justice. <laughs> Have you ever just thought about evil? I, like I think about the things that happen to children. I just get mad. I think about the, ha the things that, that, the abuses that occur against women, against those who are oppressed. I just get angry. 
You know, like we live in a place, Canada, it's fairly safe and it's a good place to live, but the reality is evil surrounds us. <laughs> Montreal is an internet hub and there's another kind of hub that makes its basis in, inter in, in, in Montreal using the internet. It's one that capitalizes on, on pornography and prostitution. The 401. Every hotel along the 401 is, is wrought with prostitution as people travel up and down it. Every day in Canada, women who are uh, oppressed or ostracized are stolen from their life and moved across the country and then put into uh, slavery. When I think about those things, I get so angry. But it's, it's messed up because it's hypocritical because, well, like I'm evil too. If I get that angry about those kinds of abuses, and, and I think I'm not unreasonable in doing that, how much more anger does God then have? I don't even know these people. I, I, honestly, I don't even know if I love them. How can you love someone you don't know? But God does know them, and these are his children, and this is happening to them. Think of the, if someone touched my child like that, I would have to ask God for a lot of forgiveness for the things that I would do. And so all of those sins were put on Jesus. And it's God poured his wrath out on him. That in that moment, it got dark. There was an earthquake. And God's wrath was poured out on Jesus. And right before that happened, you know what he said? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That Jesus knew what he was about to experience. And it wasn't just death on a cross. It was to suffer for the sins of the world. And you, you hear it in his cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Reality is, is that hell or evil demands justice. Without hell, there, there really isn't any justice. But the cross in the light of hell is gorgeous. Because it's grace, it's mercy, it's justice, and it's love. It's grace because we receive something that we don't deserve. It's mercy because we receive something we don't deserve. It's justice because sin is atoned for. And it is love. As it says in Romans 5, 8, one of my favorite verses of the Bible, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We, didn't, we weren't good enough for him to die on the cross. We were loved enough for him to die on the cross. And so while it is offensive that this cross claims and states about you that you are a broken, despicable sinner, it also says, but I love you. And the reality is, if, if there isn't a hell, if there isn't this sense of just, justice that, 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 that atones for, that, that is satisfied then the cross becomes this cruel, capricious, and unnecessary thing. And it is not that. 
So this, this discussion about like the reality of hell and, and its necessity, it's, it's a conversation that we need to have. And it's one we need to kind of keep in the forefront of our minds as we go about our day because the reality is it's what we deserve. But because of what Jesus Christ has done, it's not what we're going to get. I don't, uh, I don't know where you're at right now in your relationship with God. I don't know if you really even have a relationship with God. But I challenge you to think of the cross. And just simply consider, what does it mean to you? Let's pray. Jesus, you were right. We know not what we do. But as we come to understand what you have done, we are thankful. Help us to be humble and gracious as we accept what you have done. Help us to not dwell on ourselves and our own brokenness, but to focus on you and what you are doing in our lives. God, I pray that you would that you would heal our relationships with one another. That if we want to be in relationship with you, it needs to spill onto the way in which that we interact with each other. God, only you can accomplish these things. Lord, there's nothing that we can bring to you. There's no way that we can repay the debt that you have taken from us. So just have all of us. Have all of me. And I pray that you would use me and you would use all of us here to glorify your name. I ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.